0: I wanna take us on a journey of remembering this morning. This journey will take us to some uncomfortable and some hurtful places in our city's history. And like most stories and most journeys, it will be incomplete. It will lack all the possible perspectives. Much of the information that I've gathered comes from members of our congregation, from our minister emeritus, the Reverend John Cummins, and from a particular story on Minnesota Public Radio. I hope that if you know more about the story that I'm telling that you will share your stories too so we might fill the picture out even more fully together. The story I wanna tell today is about a particular place and like every particular place, it is rooted in a particular time. The year is 1936. A young woman named Fanny Shanfield is out looking for a job. Fanny has just graduated from South High. Her parents are Romanian immigrants and she is living at home with her family of eight. She's thinking about her future. She's 19 years old and she's looking for a job where she can make some real money. She knows that she can make $1.50 a week working at the dry goods stores down on Franklin Avenue, but she's hoping for something more. She's heard that you can make $35 a week, real money, if you know how to use a machine called the Comptometer, which is the adding machine of the day. So she got on the streetcar and she went down to the Comptometer School. There, the woman responsible for entrance in- interviews asked her all kinds of questions. She asked her questions about her hopes and dreams, her experiences, her grades in school. The interview was going great. And then there was one last question. Are you Jewish? yes we don't have any Jewish students well I'm sorry about that for you but I don't mind being the only Jewish student we don't place Jewish students you don't have to place me just train me I'll get my own job I'm sorry we can't accept you or your money and that was that Fanny's money pushed back across the table as she was asked to leave the office conversation over." At the time, this kind of experience was fairly typical for Jews living in Minneapolis. As was true in many cities across America, Jews faced advertisements for employment that read, Gentiles preferred. And like African Americans in in Minneapolis, Jews found that their housing choices were confined to very specific neighborhoods with nearly half of all new housing developments at the time openly stating that sales and rentals were not to be made to blacks or to Jews. In many ways, the anti-Semitism that Jews faced in Minneapolis at the time was consistent with the anti-Semitism that Jews were facing all over the country. But in some ways, it was different here in Minneapolis. Contrary to what life was like across the river in St. Paul, Jews in Minneapolis were barred not only from housing and employment, but they were also openly barred from involvement in service organizations and clubs, including the local Lions and Rotary and Kiwanis and Toastmasters clubs, and even the American Automobile Association, the AAA. It was common to walk around in Minneapolis and and see signs that just read NJA, no Jews allowed. And just nearby, not too far from where we are right now, at the Calhoun Beach Club, folks remember seeing a plaque there that read, no Jews, no peddlers, no dogs. It's also true that in the mid-1930s here in Minneapolis, there was a group known as the Silver Shirts. This group was modeled after Hitler's brown shirts, and it emerged all over the country, but one of the largest organizations of the silver shirts, one of the largest chapters was right here in Minneapolis. This group burned crosses and published anti-Semitic newspapers and worked hard to instill fear in the city's Jewish population. It was 1946 when a prominent national speaker came to town and looked around and observed everything. And he gave Minneapolis the dubious distinction of being the capital of anti-Semitism in the United States. Some of our local business owners and politicians were shocked and appalled by this. Some of them, of course, were actually members of the Silver Shirts organization themselves. But what I'm told is that the Jews in town found it actually to be a bit of a relief to have somebody say out loud what they had known to be true for so long. Over on the north side of the city, Minneapolis Jews had created a safe enclave, a place where Jewish businesses and housing and congregations thrived. Most of the city's 16,000 Jews lived in that community, and many of them would say that it was that community, those neighborhoods that provided any sense of safety and possibility and mutual care that saved them. So imagine then, Imagine then being a Jew on the south side of the city in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Imagine being the only Jewish student in a high school where the football and basketball cheers turned openly anti-Semitic during games that were against any of the north side teams. Imagine struggling to find housing and employment and safety. And then imagine that you're part of a religious community a synagogue that is the first conservative Jewish community in Minneapolis. Imagine that your religious community is able, for the first time, to construct a building just for your congregation. In the context of this city, at that time, with this truthful but awful distinction of being the capital of anti-Semitism in the United States, what might you build this building? This building we're in today constructed and opened in 1927 is the embodiment of that moment, of that history, of those hopes and dreams. Adath Jashrun, the oldest conservative Jewish congregation west of Chicago, they built this building as their spiritual home. And as I understand it, this building was constructed to convey some very clear messages. This building was built to say, we are here, We are here in this community and we are not moving. You might not be willing to sell us land or a home in this neighborhood, but we have purchased this space and we are building this building and we are not moving. This building was built to also say, you cannot destroy us. You might threaten us and try to scare us, but we will construct a building that is strong enough to sustain and repel your hatred. We will build a building where the sanctuary is hidden and safe and intimate. We will build a building that can withstand graffiti and threats, a place where our most sacred text, the Torah, can be safely stored in a bomb-proof shelter, complete with a sliding steel door that you can still see down in the atrium today. It is this building that we moved into in 1993. It is this building that has become our church home and whether we ever meant to or not, we have inherited the intentions that are built into this building in its very bones. These intentions that say we are here and we will not be moved. These intentions that say you cannot destroy us. We will withstand whatever onslaught of hatred comes our way. These intentions that hold the spiritual center of this place close and protected, yet intimate and beautiful once you find it. Over the 24 years since we've moved into this place, we have respected its history and we have made changes to help make this building better reflect who we are and who we want to be. The original stained and painted glass windows that were here, once they deteriorated deteriorated beyond what we could afford to repair, we offered them to Adath and to other Jewish congregations before replacing them with the clear glass windows that let in the light today. You can still see some of those original windows at the Minneapolis Institute of Art in their Judaica section. We changed the doors outside on the first floor as you come up those big steps. The heavy dark wooden doors were removed and replaced with the clear glass doors that many of you probably came in through today. We added an elevator so that folks who have challenges with mobility can come in and be a part of what is happening in the sanctuary. These changes and so many more brought in sunlight. They brought in the outdoors. They offered a more inclusive and inviting welcome that is reflective of who we are and who we want to be. In the year ahead, we'll be making more plans to change this building again. And it is my intention that, again, we will honor and respect this building's history while also making changes that allow the space to mirror and maybe even inspire us to be who we want to be in the world. I hope you'll be part of these ongoing conversations. We have a few more coming up. I know that where we live and what our spaces are like matters and we're excited to make this space into one that is even more of a reflection and an inspiration of who we are and who we want to be. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. These are the words of Adrian Marie Brown, a self-described black queer activist, organizer, author, and facilitator. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. I've been sitting with this quote, instinctively affirming it and wondering what it means for us. What does it mean for our spiritual lives, for our work for justice, for how we create community for this building, for the intentions that we set for ourselves and our homes and our ways of being. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. On the small scale, we practice here how we want to be, in our small groups, at church, as we lean into deep listening, as we learn to trust the wisdom in each of us, as we hear and tell our stories and our truths. On the small scale, we set our intentions for our spiritual practices. We look for things that will support us and offer balance and equanimity and hope, these spiritual practices that can draw us back into feelings of wonder and awe, that can lead us to ask for help when we need it, to say thank you and please. On the small scale, we do what we can with what we have right where we are as we act for justice. There's a theory in social justice organizing that is based on the concept of fractals. This is how Adrienne Marie Brown explains it. She writes, a fractal is a never-ending pattern. Fractals are infinitely complex patterns that are self-similar across different scales. They are created by repeating a simple process over and over in an ongoing feedback loop. In essence, she's saying a fractal is something that is the same on the large scale as it is on the small scale. You might know this as a Fibonacci pattern. These show up all over the planet in the form of cauliflower and broccoli and ferns and deltas in the veins of our bodies and the tributaries of our rivers. This concept of fractals that she describes has left me wondering, What if our building, what if our smallest act is a part of a fractal pattern? What if it matters on the small scale how we interact with our friends and coworkers and fellow volunteers? What if it matters how we pass people on the street or in our cars? What if it matters what we build and what we change here? What if it matters how we talk with children and elders and mentors and loved ones? What if we are in fact practicing with every word and deed, building the world that we long to create. Now, I'm sure this concept is not new to you. Maybe it's even there on your coffee mug in the words of Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. Maybe you've heard it another way too: transform yourself to transform the world. Or maybe you heard it in the ancient wisdom teachings today that we cannot have peace between nations unless we have peace in our heart. Now, the good news of this theory that comes to us from so many different times and places, the good news of this theory is that there is always a place to start if we are wanting to create justice and peace and love in our world. There is always a place to begin. It is right here in our own hearts, in our relationships, in the communities that we create. There is always a place to begin. It is devastatingly clear to me, Adrienne Marie Brown writes, "'It is devastatingly clear to me "'that until we have some sense "'of how to live our solutions locally, "'we won't be successful at implementing "'a just governance system regionally, "'nationally, or globally.'" And one of the ways we can start to do this, to make these changes, she says, is to move away from the idea of strategic planning and move toward the idea of strategic intentions. Strategic planning may be something that we are comfortable with or we've heard about or maybe we just know by being a part of this culture. Planning that says, I'm going to achieve this goal on this date at this time in this way. And I'm going to do that and that and that. Check off the boxes. But what if, she says, what if instead of checking off those boxes and moving through those plans on a particular date at a particular time, what if we as individuals and institutions were so clear about our values that we could trust that those values were going to inform every single decision that we were going to make? What if we could trust those intentions, those guiding principles that we could carry to move into every aspect of our work and our lives, and in doing so, we would be guided toward justice and liberation and peace? What if we developed and trusted our strategic intentions instead of our strategic plans as our guide? Now this is a different way of being and moving in a world that demands tangible, visible results on a timetable, thank you very much. But I know that I find myself trusting more and more that the way forward that I want to live into is actually a way into the unknown for me. We've been steeped in a culture of white supremacy Steeped in a culture that says, I'll take mine and hold it close and I'll take yours too and bring it in and keep it as mine. This culture that is so full of fear and division that I think sometimes I and maybe we don't even know what a different world would look like. A different way of being. Maybe it's a kind of being in a world that we don't have language for yet. Maybe the concept hasn't been developed yet or maybe we haven't listened hard enough to hear it. I don't know exactly what this world or this way of being will look like, but I do trust that moving together with our values and our faith at the center, with our opportunities to practice that are here in our families and communities, we can change how we are on the small scale and how we are on the large scale will follow. There are plenty of places to practice how we are on the small scale. Lately, I've been practicing in my relationship with my son in particular. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but sometimes I can get tired or angry or anxious or worried, and when I feel that way, I can be flip or dismissive or sarcastic. I don't really like this part of myself. I wish I could just pick it up and take it out and make it go away, but I know it And so it is a perfect place for me to practice again and again and again. I know that when I'm worried or anxious or tense, I can do these things. So I've been trying to take a deep breath before I speak. I've been trying to remind myself and him as we talk together about what my intentions are for how we are together. I'll say out loud, I want this home to be a place where you know that you are always loved no matter what. I want this to be a place where we can practice being our best selves together and where we can build a better world. When I say these things out loud, I remind myself and we remind each other who we are and who we want to be. And it's then that my strategic intentions move in and my strategic plans about the particular timeline we're on and if we're out the door to school at just the right moment can slip away and my strategic intention of creating a home filled with love can step in. I trust that strategic intentions can be our guide, that they can center us in our deepest values, even as the world around us shifts in ways we cannot even predict. Strategic intentions help us to remember who we are and who we want to be. So I invite us together to be a community of remembering, and a community of practicing. Maybe you'll do this in a small group here at church, finding your community within this larger community. Wherever you do this, together we can ask the questions. How might we see and know who we are and where we have been? How might we take the stories of the past, the inheritances that we have been given that we want or don't want, And how can we transform them into stories of liberation and justice and peace? How might we change who we are and how we are on the small scale? And what strategic intentions do we want to set going forward? May these and so many more be the questions in our hearts. May it be so. Amen.